We know that Mr. Dover is hiding really <laughs> he's, under the car. He's playing he's hide hiding. and seek yeah, yeah. Car, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's buried under the car. Come and get me. Welcome back to Are You Watching Closely? I'm Spencer Channel. And I'm Mallory Strom. I'm a composer, writer, and IMDb nerd. And I'm an artist and mathematician, and I use Netflix as a nightlight. You just got out of seeing the best movie ever with your close friends, and you all go out to dinner afterwards, or you go home, And uh, but the thing is, you loved the movie so much, you can't help but keep talking about it and discussing it mm-hmm. and uh, sharing notes about what you saw. And Spencer and I, we are your friends now. Uh, <laughs> and we break down your, your favorite films after um, having watched them and watched them very closely. Yeah. And we're pretty nerdy friends at that. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we're super into film and TV. Um, so it's really fun for us to be able to watch your favorite shows um, by your recommendation. Um, and also we get to sort of build a little community where we all are watching uh, the same things and, and hearing each other's thoughts, and it's a lot of fun. So. Uh-huh. Today, uh, we're watching a recommendation from Isaac. Thank you, Isaac, for recommending Woo! this film. It's called Prisoners um, by, let's see if I can get this right, Denis Villeneuve. Good, very good. Yeah, um, the film is not written by Denis Villeneuve, but he did direct it, and he also directed Arrival, um, which we uh, broke down in an earlier episode of our show. Um, and so I think Isaac listened to that episode and was like, oh, you guys got to listen to some more or watch some more Denis Villeneuve. Uh-huh. And uh, he, he recommended a few different Denis Villeneuve films. And this one ended up being one that we wanted to check out. So yeah. Prisoners, uh, Prisoners is uh, our episode today. I think this is the first show we've watched uh, on Are You Watching Closely that I hadn't already seen before. Um, I think that's which right. is really really fun for me uh, yeah. to get to have like truly first impressions um, and we just finished watching it so this is like immediately after watching the movie these are our thoughts like fresh uh, off the boat um, hot mm-hmm. off the press um, <laughs> adjective off, off the, the noun <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I feel like the central uh, like plot device of this film this sort of uh, archetype of a, a parent searching desperately for their child Mm. it's something that like i've seen before and uh we watched panic room a while back oh yeah the david fincher film panic room starring jodie foster and kristen stewart and like it's kind of freaky in the same way the panic room is but it's really like there's blood in it but it's not gory Uh, for me there was a lot of this back and forth between uh, like the kind of like uh as that i feel watching horror and also just like just like brilliant beautiful um images and brilliant beautiful suspense yeah um, throughout the film yeah that's i feel like the meeting of minds between uh denis Villeneuve and the the dp uh roger deakins who is an incredible cinematographer um and he also does the cinematography for like all of the like uh, blade runner 2049 uh-huh. um sicario um as well as like coen brothers movies and um, shawshank yeah, and uh, what's that? What's that Ron Howard film? Beautiful Mind. Oh, yeah. Maybe other Ron Howard films. I don't know. Roger Deakins is an incredible cinematographer, and I this this movie was so stunningly beautiful, just picture wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were moments, literally, like the 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 scene where uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Detective Loki, 
yes. um, is is racing through traffic with a, a, a bullet wound and trying oh. to uh, take the little girl to, to the emergency room. And, like, the shots of, like, the weather and the, the streets uh, and the car, the headlights, it was just stunning. It, it just, I'm, you can hear just that I'm, I'm so freaking out because of the visuals uh-huh. in that moment. Oh, it was great. Man. I loved it. Yeah, and, and cutting in between those, like, really uh, close-up shots and the, the broad ones of the street. I love also the lighting in that mm. um, scene. Mm-hmm. With the, just like the blue and red, the blue of the the wee 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 wee, the light f- flashing in the uh, police ca- car, as well as the red of the um, tail lights in front of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I I walked away from this film with so much tension in my back, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of just tension in my body. I feel like, um, and I'm, I'm trying to sort of figure out why that is. Um, obviously, it's very suspenseful as a film. Um, there's lots of really shocking, um, but not shocking in the way that it's kind of startling, but more just uh, gruesome and uh, morally ambiguous, if not uh, deplorable decisions that characters make in the ways that they treat each other and the things they do, um, that I think it's just very disturbing um, to me. Uh Um, But at the same time, it's, it's disturbing in a way that is like that you would want from a good movie. Um, it yeah. takes you into the dark uh, areas of, of your psyche um, and sort of lets you explore the moral questions that arise in a really complicated situation and watch different characters choose different paths um, and see that all play out and, and the effect that their actions have on each other and on themselves. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't mean to say that because it's disturbing, it was unpleasant. Um, 100%, I'm kind of glad that I, I had all this tension in my body because yeah. I'm like, this is what I'm here for. Like, uh, this is the, the fun of a, of a really good story that, that takes you into an alternate reality of, of just like the underbelly of humanity, you know? I mean, yeah, it is. It is pretty disturbing in a way that actually makes it pretty hard for me to talk about. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I guess that's what the the movie theater does for anyone, though, is like give a space where you can explore things that are hard to talk about. Yeah, you know the techniques it uses to explore these things that are difficult to talk about are also kind of challenging for me. Like, I can't quite figure out this roving camera thing, which it always feels like we're watching someone from behind something, mm. um, which sort of like heightens the disturbing nature of it. Because of course we are watching someone from behind something. Um, I'm not quite sure of like why we're behind something when we are, uh, at least not every time that uh, we are behind something. Oh, interesting. So you're just kind of talking about like the, the our perspective as like a, a narrator in a way, like the camera. Yeah, sort of like the camera's position. Yeah, because we, we do take on sort of some kind of omniscient, uh, sort of omnipresent. Uh, yeah, and like kind of voyeuristic. Yeah, um, like what what force are we? Um, uh-huh. Are we God? You know, because there's all this stuff where it's like with Keller Dover um, and then we... Um, when we're that omniscient sort of narrator, does that make us his god? And I think in some points it maybe does. Yeah, especially that that very first scene where all we see are the trees and they fade in very, very slowly. And we just hear a voice praying, praying yeah. to us. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. To whom? Who's he talking to? And there's literally that God shot when uh, when Mr. Dover sort of collapses on the bathroom oh, floor. Yeah. Um, and he bangs on the on the plywood and, uh-huh. and we look at him from directly above. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and there are a lot of a lot of times when we're uh, above people, which is of of course like a common technique, having the camera above someone to make them seem smaller. But um, uh, in this film, that technique takes on this like eerily religious quality. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I'm excited to kind of get into the nitty gritty of that. It sort of reminds me of um, other uh, like uh, crime thriller movies, especially like David Fincher's style. Um, in Zodiac, for instance. Oh, yeah. Or That's in, lots of, like, Rovi. Yes. Uh, I mean, David Fincher just does that all the it's time. It's a very David Fincher thing. Yeah. And also Panic Room. There's that, like, iconic yeah. uh, shot that, like, goes through uh, pieces of the house and through windows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, David Fincher's all about finding really creative ways to, like, move through a space. And we literally, like, travel through a tube um, and, like, uh-huh. embody, uh, I guess, uh propane in a moment in panic room um it's really cool and really immersive but i think david fincher's style especially as he uses it in zodiac and in um seven um Mm -hmm. or seven in uh, (laughs) (laughs) maybe has come sort of it's become uh associated with this genre of film um, in a way that I think makes uh, Denis Villeneuve's or Roger Deakins' decisions about how the camera behaves uh, like emblematic to the genre of of sort of crime thriller mysteries. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Um, it's like such a good representation of that genre too. This whole film. Yeah, um, and at the same so time, like Denis Villeneuve sort of <laughs> it, it doesn't have a heavy hand either. It sort of just feels like it exists and. Yeah. I'm excited to kind of yeah. oh. dig into like <laughs> what are like choices and what are like sort of subtler things and what are, you know, there's uh-huh. a whole range of, I think, storytelling uh, modes that this film embodies. That yeah. And also like how does it freak us out the way it did? Like, I'm, I'm really excited to break down how we, how we ended up at our experience of this film. Yeah, definitely. I feel maybe less freaked out and more sort of just uh satisfied mm. having r- raked the muck of my subconscious mm. you know yeah um yeah but just like uh, in the experience of watching the, the film we're both like <laughs> tightening up <laughs> like all of the back muscles <laughs> so. yeah oh what a great movie though um okay I, let's let's get down to the nitty-gritty let's do it let's do it This film has just such a like uh, intricately woven story. Um, there's so many different facets and corners of the story world, um, and I think the screenwriter sort of reveals them bit by bit in an order and in a way uh. that's really like effective and keeps you sort of gripped, um, uh-huh. even though it's really long. Like it's it, the movie's what like 154 minutes. Yeah, it's pretty long um and i actually happened to pull up the screenplay uh, just after watching the film and it was pages? 133 pages oh, wow. so it, it seems like you know it's it, it takes a sort of uh <laughs> unbothered pace mm-hmm. the film sort of uh, gently and slowly walks through the story in a way uh-huh. that is unhurried um, which i actually quite like about it I, yeah, I was, you know, to be totally honest, I kind of was not as into it in, in sort of the middle of Act 2. Um, mm. There was a point where we were following Keller Dover uh, and, and his story for a really long time, and it, it almost felt like we had forgotten about Detective Loki. We hadn't, we hadn't checked in with Detective Loki in, like... Mm. 
10 or 15 minutes or something. And maybe that's just, it's just felt that way. Maybe it's an exaggeration, but there are moments when I'm like, you know, I would, it, it really feels like this could have been cut a little bit, uh, a little bit leaner. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe that's just me. And maybe in that moment you're, you're feeling this time really drag on with, uh, what's his name? Sorry. Kennel. Keller? Keller? I don't know. We can go with Keller for now. We're going to go with Keller. Okay. Uh, Mr. Dover. Mr. Dover. Maybe it is then that while this time is like dragging on with Mr. Dover, you start to feel like kind of insanity that sets in when your life is dragged on for so long without your daughter. Mm. And it's just like time passing and like being more and more like flustered and not knowing what to do. Um, And turning to to stranger and stranger uh, alternatives to survive which is really like how we consider it right surviving yeah um, in the sort of doomsday scenario you know that that observation had occurred to me during the film but i forgot it until until you just reminded me now that like mm-hmm. i i i did feel like i was being brought into the experience of, of of having to wait and kind of going crazy uh not knowing when or if um you know uh i through keller's eyes I'll see my daughter again uh-huh. um, or if she'll be alive or any of that. And I guess, you know, I, I, a lot of movies I think would probably underestimate the value of time as an ingredient, as like a necessary ingredient mm. to, uh, to lead to this like result, which is like Keller uh, doing things to uh, Alex Jones that he probably wouldn't do in any other circumstance. Yeah. Except maybe he would like, maybe this is, just he's maybe it's actually pretty close to his character uh, under normal circumstances right and now it's just sort of exaggerated uh-huh. um, in a way that like this was the logical conclusion all along um, yeah that's kind of freaky thought yeah well that's the first thing we see him do is like teach his son how to kill um uh-huh. in the name of god which yeah. is uh, and he is like pretty calm about that and it, it is kind of a like well this is what you have to do mm-hmm. this is what you have to at least know how to do because one day you'll you'll need to do it and you'll need to be able to do it with resolve <laughs> and this is that day for this Keller. is that day for Keller. Yeah, yeah yeah absolutely gosh yeah um the 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 morals aside i'm sure we can get into sort of the 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 moral conflicts and the different characters maybe a little oh, yeah. later on but this just story-wise uh-huh. um I, I i mentioned how much i like the the way that the story unfolds in the way that like the details are revealed because i think this movie does this over and over again where it sort of leads you to a certain interpretation um, where you get just to the point where you're ready to say, this is what I think um, about mm-hmm. what's going on and what these people are doing. And then it introduces a new detail or presents information that you didn't know before mm-hmm. that subverts that conclusion um, or changes your sympathy or just calls into question the conclusion you formed. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like that, like that scene in the parking lot when when uh, Alex Jones, or at least at that point, we only know him as Alex Jones, mm. is released after 48 hours, and uh, Mr. Dover drives very recklessly into the parking lot and, like, assaults him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, up until that point, you're kind of led to believe that, like, they have no evidence on this guy. They, Detective Loki doesn't really have reason to believe that he's at all involved in the kidnapping. And so you think, like, this is... a free man who like should still be free yeah 
and here comes Mr. Dover, like completely out of line. Yeah. Uh, to push through the crowd and like grab this guy by his shirt and scream at him. Yeah, and and it seems so wrong. It seems like it's so clearly like the wrong thing to do. Um, because like, and it's ironic because the reason it's the wrong thing to do is because Keller Dover is being like morally absolutist, um, uh-huh. and is like using uh, uh, sort of a, a moral stance to express his rage. Um, uh, which really could be directed to anybody, and it's just that like uh, this Alex Jones guy was the first guy they found that he's sort of ready to uh, express that 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 rage into. Like this is it reminds me of like the um, the the pencil factory in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, that uh, this little girl Mary Fagan uh, was raped in, um, and I'm not sure if they ever actually were able to find out who really did it. Um, because the town of, uh, the, I guess it was Marietta, um, the specific town where this occurred, like the town rallied to try and blame, uh, the Jewish factory owner. Uh. Um, and they were sure that this, this Jewish man from Brooklyn who owned the factory, uh, was, uh, to blame for for uh what someone did to mary fagan mm-hmm. um and there's a whole like there's a there's a musical about it actually by jason robert brown the musical's called parade oh um it's about sort of just like uh, lynch mob mentality mm-hmm. um and how ready the town was to uh accuse the easiest and like the 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 the, the person that most fulfilled their prejudices um, yeah. because they were just enraged that someone would do this to a little girl who um, I think was also killed. Like she was mm-hmm. raped and then killed in the basement of this factory. And she was an employee at the factory. Oh. Um, you can look up the situation, the history behind it. It reminded me a lot of the situation where there's these two little girls who are taken away and this like morally absolutist Christian dad is ready to just uh, uh, beat someone up. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's ready yeah. to lynch them uh, or the uh, equivalent uh, uh, of causing pain or i mean he's ready to kill him pretty much yeah and it's it's sort of related to this lynch mob mentality but it's not like a mob mentality itself it's the thing that could start a Mm. mob mentality because like there's this theory about some people will just break a window when they're angry enough no matter like who's breaking windows or if anyone's breaking windows (laughs) and some people will break a window only if one person has broken a window already and uh, that's how you, you you end up with a mob is that one person will just do it and then like eventually get to like the people who would break a window if like 20 of of their neighbors were already doing it I guess that that would apply to like a situation where someone is like hesitant to do something they they know they shouldn't like uh, damaging property in this case I think actually Keller Dover feels like he is defending like a moral high ground Mm. that no one else is rising to defend yeah I almost think he he views himself as being uh, more uh, moral um, in that situation more righteous um right and i'm and i'm sure the first person to break a window would consider it a a somewhat moral thing to do it's righteous anger or and some of the things that that keller's doing are immoral ways to to sort of react to um the situation that he's in and i think he's the the kind of person who will go to take those steps um even if no one else has already and when we say immoral like, to my thinking, when I say immoral, I mean, like, hypocritical to 
Keller Dover's own values. Mm-hmm. Like it'd be immoral from his perspective. Okay. There's yeah. various moral stances presented in different characters in the movie. And so like, I, I hesitate to be like, Oh, that's immoral. Cause as the movie, the movie sort of illustrates how morality can get really complicated and uh-huh. not so clear um, right. after people do what they do to make situations worse. Yeah. But I, I think according to his own values, more, uh, when Keller uh, storms the parking lot and physically assaults Paul Dano's character. He's doing something against uh, his own uh, his own morals. Right. And so we're like really quite opposed to him. Um, not because of like our own feelings about it, but like the way that we believe he should act according to his own morals. Um, but then we get that line. <laughs> oh, right. One yeah. line. And it's like throws the whole thing up in the air. What is it? It's I, I can't remember. They didn't cry until I left them. Is yes. that what it is? They didn't yeah. cry until I left them. And he like kind of starts laughing. Right. He sort of like breaks down in that moment when he's like suddenly assaulted by, you know, the person that that he has wronged. Ugh. Yeah, and with all the information we had up to that point, up to that very line, I, like it put me a, a, as a viewer squarely in the position that Keller Dover is out of his mind, about to like treat a human being like he would a deer and hunt them down, um, uh-huh. and justify it with uh, you know religion or morality or revenge or whatever. Like I'm squarely in that position until Paul Dano's character says, "They didn't cry until I left them." And you're like, what? Is, oh God! <laughs> like maybe, uh, maybe this is more complicated. That's what just I love about the way the movie tells the story is that like, there's so many of those moments. I'm sure we could think of a ton of examples where we are sort of are led to believe something is true or right uh, or justified, and then we get to a point where it's about to come to fruition, and then it gets subverted or contradicted. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that calls everything into question uh, that we concluded. And then we have to move forward with this additional complication or ambiguity that I think uh, results in a sense for me at the end of the film that is really true to life of like, at this point, I don't know what to think Mm. because everybody has made choices along the way that are discordant with their own beliefs that are things I wouldn't, glorify or idealize Uh but at the end of the day like it just kind of all happened i don't know i don't know what to feel at the end i also feel at at some points in the movie that even the fact that it just all happened is sort of thrown into question as well it's kind of hard to believe that someone would go to such lengths to to hurt another person as as some characters in this film do and it's also difficult to know at at points in the movie whether I can trust the information I've been given. Mm. I'm thinking specifically of information that Mr. Dover has about Alex Jones. Because um, Mr. Dover is the only one who heard they only cried when I left them. He's the only one who sees Alex Jones like pick up the puppy on the leech and like torture the puppy oh yeah he's the only one who heard the song and even that sort of connection of the song to the song the girls were singing is actually pretty shaky to begin with and so i I, i'm not sure if the the information i'm given in the film is warped by mr dover's perspective because he is such a strong narrator in the film he's the first one to say anything Mm. and he's uh, sort of like 
has narrative control of the killing of the deer. And so I'm not sure whether at, like as his uh, morals break down and as his his sort of story breaks down, I'm not sure whether he's a reliable narrator or not. Wow, that's such a good point. Yeah, because it's quite possible that the movie could at some point, like the major twist could be that uh, all of these things that, that Keller Dover heard and saw Alex Jones do and say were all in his own mind. And it was just him going stir crazy, right. you know, like it, that could have been the major twist. And, I, and I'm so grateful that the movie doesn't uh, uh, like negate the validity of any of the experiences any of the characters have. Uh-huh. Or any of the information it's shown us. So we don't have to sift through what is real and what isn't. We just have to sift through what is right and what isn't. <laughs> yeah. What we feel about what has happened. It's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of uh, the <laughs> of just morality. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it, it, the, the film tells us this is what it's going to do from the very beginning, where like basically the first shot is, yeah, Keller Dover, who, whose voice is off screen and, and seems like some omniscient narrator, but then mm-hmm. we pull back and reveal we're actually, it's diegetic. Uh, he's mm-hmm. talking to his son in, in, the, in, the, in the woods. Um, but the, the very first line is about like justifying killing the act of killing using uh, a certain moral code uh-huh. um, and that's what the whole film I think uh, explores is uh, how how far can we go how how, how much is this character a uh, willing to harm someone else um, and able to justify it when do the justifications break down when does the purpose for the harm get subverted? Uh, and then where do we end up with at the end of this kind of moral soup? Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not ready to, to, I don't think I should. I think it'd be irresponsible to come out with any sort of very clear judgment, except the fact that like Alex Jones, whose real name is Barry, their character is so tragic. Mm-hmm. When you think about just the, 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 the events of the film from the perspective of Barry. Yeah. I mean, Barry just I, was what like kidnapped as a child, and then has been like poisoned or drugged in a way that uh-huh. inhibits their ability to to think and speak, and 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 they become dependent and sort of. And like really severely traumatized as well. Yeah, tortured, and then and then yeah, and then Keller Dover comes and 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 physically and psychologically tortures and and and, and abuses uh, Barry. Um, and part of the reasons that uh, Keller Dover like believes that he has to physically and and psychologically torture Barry is because of like some of the ways that Barry is as a result of his trauma trauma and drugging and uh, you Mm. know all this stuff that makes him suspicious Mm -hmm. yeah if anything I think the film does say that um, the lasting effects on these children are not to be underestimated Mm-hmm. that like all these shenanigans that the adults are pulling and all of the horrible things that they're willing to do to try to maintain a certain reality um, is taking its toll on these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's people who just want to kidnap, whether it's people who are trying to uh, rectify a kidnapping in a dysfunctional way. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, no matter what, I think ultimately it's, it, and we get that with the, the little girl who comes in in the wheelchair to like thank detective Loki. And she just sits there in silence. Isn't that, isn't that Anna? It is Anna. Yeah. I forgot her name. Oh. Um, and yeah, you're just like in that moment, I'm like, I, I, <laughs> 
her mom says she's come to thank you and then she doesn't say a word Uh and i think that speaks volumes especially since the only thing we know of of anna and joy before their kidnapping is that like super joyous day on thanksgiving and they're very talkative and very energetic Mm -hmm. and they're completely different in the hospital yeah and still the adults are trying to use them as like props to uh, to like validate or provide evidence for their own reality or their moral views Their, their her mother thinks she should be grateful to the detective perhaps and maybe like she has indicated that she did want to go thank the detective maybe she was able to communicate that and her mom is trying to create some normalcy around uh, uh, like her complete change in behavior yeah could be but ultimately her autonomy and her ability to like uh, just exist and be happy is undercut um, by the actions of all of these adults around her yeah and i think that like culminating moment uh, would not be so fraught if it weren't for all of the twists and turns and moral mm-hmm. questions that have been raised and then and ambiguity debunked yeah, yeah throughout the film um, it just culminates in, in like I said this moral soup that uh, <sighs> woof um, uh, but brilliantly crafted uh-huh This film is also beautifully suspenseful. Um, I'm just like so in awe of of how it it, it crafts this feeling of uh, suspense, where in those classic scenarios where I know something the characters don't, and I'm just like begging for them to uh, find out about it before it's too late. And also just in this like general what's going to happen kind of. Um, continuing suspense of, of that uh, story arc as well. Yeah, like dramatic questions and dramatic irony right? woven beautifully into the story. Yeah, and artfully. Like, I, maybe maybe artful suspense is how mm-hmm. I would put it. Yeah. Um, like, I still, I, my back is still tense. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and yeah. I, I think it's a result of the effect that it had, which is, yeah. Uh-huh. And I think perhaps the best example of, of the dramatic irony part of it is in this last shot of the film where we know that Mr. Dover is hiding uh, under or, or is buried really <laughs> he's, under the car. He's playing he's hide hiding. and seek under yeah, yeah, the car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's buried under the car. Come and get me. And he's blowing his daughter's whistle mm. um, to try and be noticed. And Detective Loki like has very good hearing and can hear that whistle just barely and hasn't quite convinced himself it's real yet. Yeah. And we can just stare at his face for so long just begging him to realize it's real. Yeah, and he's not, I, I, we know exactly what it means, too. The other part of it, I think, is that he doesn't know what it signifies exactly. We know that right. Dover has a whistle and he's in a hole in the ground under the car, but that's not a that's not a very logical thing to conclude when you hear mm-hmm. uh, like a, a, a whistling noise at, in, at the middle of the night. And so I think, too, we're, we're, the reason we're so trained on his face in that moment is to, to see if he's able to piece together what we were shown explicitly uh-huh. um, when he just hears the sound of a whistle and we're like don't dismiss that don't dismiss it don't dismiss it there's like like think about it like look around like you know and we want to see if if he has any moments of realization or if he has going to decide to investigate Uh and how Um, many times does he dismiss it i think three or four at least (laughs) yeah 
Denis Villeneuve like plays up that moment really artfully in the similar way that that um, he does in Arrival. There's a, a scene in Arrival where there's literally like a bomb that we know is going to go off, but mm-hmm. the characters don't know is going to go off, and we get to watch it tick down uh-huh, and, and keep cutting back to it. Yeah, it's a literally bomb theory, uh-huh. um, which is like a you can you can look up videos of Alfred Hitchcock uh, explaining bomb theory. The idea that like uh, dramatic irony um, is so much more effective. Or dramatic irony is a way more effective tool for suspense than shock uh, mm-hmm. or startling an audience. And um, if if you're a patron, you may have heard uh, a, an additional breakdown of bomb theory that we did um, <laughs> after that episode or during that episode. And it got cut for time. Yeah, but Denis Villeneuve obviously is really uh, he knows the art behind suspense um, and is able to to cons- not only construct these scenarios where there is suspense. Uh, where there's a dramatic question, where there's dramatic irony, but also is able to play with it for a long time mm-hmm. and hold interest and and keep it going, uh, so it is fun um, for longer as well. Right, and there's an additional thing that I think supports the suspense in this particular last moment of the movie, which is that th- the other piece of information that we know that. Uh, Detective Loki doesn't know is that the whistle he's blowing is so important to the characters in the film. It was important to Anna, which makes it so precious to to um, Mr. Dover because not only does it mean his daughter has been there, um, it means that it, she has this this object that's been important to her that like he even dreamed about her finding it. I forgot about that. Yeah, and now he has this, and so there's this additional like beautiful story element that heightens sort of like emotional experience of that last scene and i think that that also helps to carry the suspense that Mm -hmm. much longer and anna was wearing it around her neck when she when she uh came up to detective loki in the hospital yeah well Uh, she was wearing a replacement one right Right. she was wearing a red uh whistle though and Uh just the symbol of the red whistle for sure but also then just the the logic the practicality of detective loki has seen a red whistle on anna Uh, and might mm -hmm. associate a whistle with kidnapped children and might form the conclusion that there's another one and then might find Dover, you know, Uh and I think that also is, it helps us to believe that it's possible that Detective Loki could put this together. Right, Um, especially because he knows that Anna and Joy believe they found the whistle before they were kidnapped. Right, yes. So, which means they may have had it when they were kidnapped, which means it may be somewhere along the trail, which exactly. means... So it plants enough information for us to know what's going on and to know that Detective Loki doesn't, but also it provides enough information for Detective Loki to figure it out, mm-hmm. or for at least for us to expect that he might be able to, right. but not quite enough that we know he will for sure. Uh-huh. It's just, it's very nuanced and it's very, it's just, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And then I think we get that that very last image of the film where he looks around his shoulder one more time and like i think i see a f- flash of uh, of recognition or or of like oh he's like actually starting to put it together and that's when we get a fade to black in the mm. credits yeah oh, what an incredible note to leave on um because that's that's been the, the the entire mode of the film so far is like will these characters figure out 
the truth um, or will they unravel uh, this mess? Right. Um, and, and I think, you know, because the film ends on that dramatic question, that dramatic irony, that suspense, it, it still doesn't relieve the tension in your body. Um, <laughs> and you're just kind of left with the credits and Johan Johansson's score yeah. to try and uh, come to peace. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think one, of, one thing that does sort of relieve some of that tension for me is that I'm rooting for Detective Loki throughout the whole film one of the first things i learned about him was he's solved every case he's been given Mm -hmm. and and then i've seen him figure stuff out through the whole film that i i are 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 such subtle things like his evidence is so subtle and he works it out so i i i trust him by the end of the film we believe in him like yeah Yeah. and we're rooting for him Uh uh-huh absolutely but oh yeah Gosh darn it! What a, what a great movie! Yeah. <laughs> this is such a good recommendation, Isaac. Um, uh, thank I mean, you. Yeah, I trust your movie taste, but then also just like it's not that I didn't expect it would be good, but it's really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. So the suspense of the film, a key element to the to the effect, the story, uh, the the world of the story, the characters, uh-huh. and just artfully crafted by uh, Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that kind of kept me enraptured in this film is um, the performances. There's an incredible cast of actors in the movie, um, and I think pretty much all of them just like deliver this really nuanced and uh, like human and complicated yeah. uh, portrait of each of these characters and sort mm-hmm. of their background and, and what, what has led them to believe and, and how they respond to situations. Um, physically and like it's just there's really specific and excellent performances in the whole movie that I I, I love and it makes it feel kind of organic Um, I mean even the guy who plays uh, Alex Jones Paul Dano Paul Dano yeah Yeah. from Little Miss Sunshine and Uh uh, there will be blood yeah Paul Dano because his character has this unique sort of general way of being that's pretty subdued and then Uh, every once in a while he'll hit a beat that's suddenly very different like when Mm. uh hugh jackman's character uh, assaults him in the parking lot and he he shifts into what almost feels like a separate character because it's a separate side of this character his face is completely different his voice is uh, a little bit different tone and he says that one line and just as quickly as he went into that side of this character he shifts back out of it Oh gosh, yeah. It, it, I feel like Paul Dano does that really brilliantly. Um, it, like in this movie, one hundred percent, and then also like it, it's it's kind of like he brings that to the characters he plays in other films too. Like I mentioned, in There Will Be Blood, he plays he plays this like uh, uh, preacher guy who has like definitely like two sides to him because he he's has an agenda and he's super like manipulative um, and so such that he presents a certain side of himself, um, but it comes from a dark place that he keeps sort of. Uh, out of public eye except uh-huh. in certain moments uh-huh. and of course his character in little miss sunshine too where he doesn't talk at all and then suddenly he's speaking and there's another side to his personality where he, he's verbalizing again mm. um and so like paul dano i think creates these really complicated like portraits of these characters and then like 100 in that moment i i totally recognize what you mean where like there's the there's the version of alex jones that is sort of like default um uh, being and dealing with life and then in that moment shifts into like something that is different but also feels like it belongs uh-huh. you know mm-hmm. 
that was what was remarkable to me about it is that it feels like the same character, even though like as an acting gesture, it's somewhere completely different, you know? Uh, it's like the difference between how you are when you're calm and how you are when you're startled. Mm. Paul Dano found that difference for this particular uh, character. This is how he responds when he's caught off guard, uh-huh. uh, when his, his guard is down. Yeah. Uh, the voice he does for the character is really compelling and it, it, like it, it's, it, it makes it seem sort of weak and it makes him seem kind of innocent and childlike and uh-huh. um and uh i i mean that is the character is kind of caught in this this childlike uh psychology yeah um which is so sad to consider um uh, sort of in retrospect the way that paul dano plays this character is basically just like a child trapped in a in a, in a traumatic uh stage of development that they uh-huh. never got past yeah and like the reason he this character has the iq of a 10 year old based on the way paul dano plays him is because he never was able to get past being 10 yeah and what a what a simple um and just like it, it a simple acting choice that means everything um, uh-huh. and and makes perfect sense with the character and really just comes to define uh, who they are. Right. Um, that's just really incredible. We're talking a lot about Paul Dano and like I love Paul Dano so like yeah but uh, like also Hugh Jackman brings a really cool performance to the film in a way that's really compelling to me like like he, he plays Keller Dover in this really complicated and nuanced way that, that I think Keller Dover as a character could be a lot more one-dimensional uh-huh um but hugh jackman kind of shows him in these various states and and, and, and different just like behaviors and physicalities that show just the different colors of of his damages and his personality and um uh-huh. in a way that it just makes him very compelling as a character in a way that i'm not sure i would relate to him as much if it weren't for the performance right if it's not for those nuances he's just a character who gets angry when his his daughter goes missing and expresses that anger in like punching people yeah well at the same time i think it's not that the character is written in a way that's oversimplified right like i think like keller dover comes from this sort of family structure that puts a lot of pressure on him um in a in kind of a gendered way Mm, where like the way the mom reacts to this i thought you would protect all of us oh my god it's so like patriarchal um it's so so much pressure on keller dover um to like provide security and safety um Uh and stability when his wife uh, his partner like just collapses um uh, in the situation and doesn't provide any of uh, of a sort of like uh, foundation for um her partner for her husband and when keller dover needed that moment to collapse and really be struck by what has happened to him he doesn't get it and so he has to carry on yeah um with all of his damages on his shoulders still and of course i don't want to villainize um mrs dover for her her not being uh, very stable like emotionally or psychologically right. um because we see that that she's taking pills for for something and uh-huh. like i don't want to make it seem like she's a villain for not <laughs> being reliable but i'm just uh-huh. I, i'm analyzing kind of just the power structures of the of the family and like why is there so much pressure on um the like kind of patriarch of the family to to rectify this situation and and provide a a a different kind of reality for 
for the family. Like, I think that's kind of part of what leads uh, Keller Dover to respond so extremely to the situation is because I think he feels uh, unable to, to make things right and so kind of has to express this feeling of inadequacy and failure in a way that uh, is uh, not constructive. <laughs> uh-huh. He's also sort of like tasked with finding out what is reality or like being the authority on what is reality in the first scene of the film like he's the authority on you know whether or not they have money to buy the car Mm. and he he sort of like has the last word on on questions of of money which are um really questions of reality Mm -hmm. um what is realistic at this point in our lives and so when reality doesn't make any sense um, I think you're totally right. He does have to like construct this new kind of reality, and he's the one with the responsibility to do that in this family structure. Mm-hmm. And you know, f- faced with a reality that just doesn't make sense, he just kind of does something that makes him feel like he's in control still. Yeah, like he feels like he's he's making progress, or this is the thing that'll make him feel uh, less chaotic. You know, mm-hmm. he just like establishes something to be true. Yeah, which is really creating more chaos. Um, right, it only feels more ordered to him <laughs> as the one who's causing more chaos. Right, right. right it right. makes sense only to him, um, and and really only helps his own uh, psyche. <laughs> yeah, I think that's central to sort of the dysfunction of the Dover family is that it's almost like they have this expectation that reality be ordered that mm-hmm. like things are can be predictable and that like if you just create enough security um or safety that you can have that and that that you can that's a reasonable expectation um for things to be orderly and for things to be predictable and i i think it's like the very the very worst thing to happen to them um to like lose a member of the family and not know if they're gone all this uncertainty is just mm-hmm antithetical to the Dover family's philosophy right they're just not prepared to uh to cope with it in a way that's constructive Uh (laughs) you know yeah and in that way the thing that that you know may make the Dovers very strong in certain situations in other situations make them incredibly weak yeah. And we watch them unravel, and I think that's part of why we sympathize with Keller Dover is um, because, uh, like, he is struggling, and this is a, this is suffering, um, and 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 we're hoping, I think, that that he sort of is able to work through a kind of catharsis where he learns better coping mechanisms, or their family becomes more functional. Um, uh, uh-huh. once they are reunited you know uh-huh. we want them to be whole we want them to to be able to cope with hardship um yeah. and so i think it's hinted at that that may be that may be coming that like uh-huh. being dropped into a ditch like may be what keller needed to let go uh-huh. um of being the authority um that he gets that kind of turned in his face um, yeah. and uh and maybe it is but also they're coming up on another situation that in which their their sort of default position or their default strategy might prove to be very weak because now they have a daughter and also Keller himself who has gone through a really traumatic experience mm-hmm. and i wonder if if their strategies are 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 sufficient to find a way through that and remain strong yeah well nothing's going to be the same right i mean however the dover family rebuilds it will have to just it will always feel different i think from this point on for them and i think it's all about how they put things back together again Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so that was kind of a tangent. We started talking about performances and acting, and we got into characters, but it's all related. Um, Hugh Jackman, Paul Dano, and then, of course, Jake Gyllenhaal does just, like, a really, really great... I, I drew attention to, like, micro-expressions of, of rage that he showed when he was, like, uh, interrogating um, the... Uh, what is the character's name? Bob Tyler? I, Something like that. I might have that Tyler? wrong. But, yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal also just... I'm drawn in by, by his character, too, in a way that's yeah. kind of understated. Another thing that I think I noticed about his his acting in this film is when his character is agitated, he blinks a lot. Right. And that's I think that's related to that uh, micro-expression of anger, um, which is a narrowing of the brows, which is sort of uh, related to blinking and is accompanied by blinking. In a, uh, it's almost like his character has maybe this tick that happens when yeah. things aren't going according to plan, really. Yeah, he's trying to re- refresh the image and like <laughs> make oh, it better i don't know yeah yeah that's interesting because he's solved every single case uh he's worked on so far yeah um and i think he's he's going to solve this one too and i think maybe just this like blinking and refreshing is kind of related to this concept of like uh all right refresh figure this uh-huh. out um rectify this reality like gotta sort this through and 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 it's kind of a determination too and a yeah i think that's relatable and it's also kind of a tensing a, a trying to claim control like i am gonna solve this one too part of a, a claiming of control can be a, a a tensing or 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 almost like a possessive like grabbing but mm-hmm. but uh with the eyelids because you've uh, <laughs> limited your your like hand and arm gestures yeah maybe that's a reach maybe we're reading a lot into like a know. small detail but it's yeah. it's something that's like i think emblematic of the character and i walked away remembering it and, oh, and yeah. i i thought that was pretty cool um just the choice that he made it kind of made the character memorable mm-hmm. i liked it i love all the performances in the film and just the ways you can see the different aspects of the characters woven into just really subtle physicalities and, and their voices and their gestures. And um, it's just, oh, it's so good. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our episode on uh, Prisoners. Yeah. By recommendation of Isaac. Oh my God. Um, thank you so much, Isaac. That was yeah. uh, so fun to to break that down and what a great movie yeah Yeah. it was a really good recommendation if you have a recommendation for a film that you really love and uh, you'd like to share it with the podcast um, then we would love to watch the movies that you love and break them down for you here on the show yeah, and you can send us an email at areyouwatchingcloselypodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you think we should watch. Um, we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, so you can slide into our DMs or leave us a comment. Um, <laughs> yeah, or if you it. have any additional thoughts or corrections or ideas about oh, things yes. we've covered in episodes, we'd love to hear from you about that, too, and sort of your analysis as well, the things that we may have missed that we weren't watching close enough to catch. Uh-huh. <laughs> but our central hub is our Patreon over at patreon.com slash watching closely it's in the description you can find a lot of cool articles that we've posted about all of the movies and tv episodes that we've watched if you want to learn more or, or, or get some more information dive a little deeper yeah see That's the things really that there. we're seeing and read the things we're reading in yeah. relation to the films we also have a watch along podcast that's available through the patreon for five dollars a month you could support our podcast efforts and get an entire additional podcast uh-huh. where basically we just uh we have a, a good time uh watching movies together and uh, mallory and i talk through the films uh-huh. <laughs> um and uh, sort of remark on the things that we're thinking and, and uh, uh you know like friends do when we watch movies
movies together. Yeah, and not only do you get that complete additional podcast, you also get outtakes and, and cut for time segments from the regular show. Exactly, yeah. So uh, we'd love to see you over on Patreon. We love that you're listening. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So thank you um, for supporting our show and thank you for listening. Yeah, I've been uh, Mallory Strom. <laughs> I've been Spencer Channel. <laughs> and we will continue to be <laughs> till next episode at least. Thanks for watching closely. Bye. Bye.